This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. This episode is brought to you by Praxis, discoverpraxis.com. Derek McGill, who was interviewed on an episode from season one, dropped out of the University of Michigan. He went from the dean's list to leaving school. Why? Because he was bored. Not because it was too hard for him or he wasn't good enough for an elite school. It just wasn't good enough for him. It wasn't bringing him what he wanted. It wasn't worth it. The prestige and the pleasure of others that he was there, not a good enough reward considering the life that he wanted to build. He quit. He joined Praxis. He's a digital marketing guru, all self-taught. After being in the program, we liked his work so much, we hired him on as our marketing director. Derek is one of many examples of young people today who are realizing the world is changing. It's changing fast. There's more opportunity than ever to be your own signal, to be your own credential, to create things and demonstrate your value creation potential through what you've done in tangible ways. Build a website, build an online presence, get work experience. Don't worry. It sounds overwhelming, but you get all of that in the year-long Praxis program. It's not easy, but no great adventure is. Discoverpraxis.com slash apply. You can join Derek and many others in building the education revolution, starting with your own life. Today, I am thrilled to be joined by Kevin Geary. And is that how you pronounce it, Kevin Geary? Yep, that's okay, right. Got it. I thought so, but I didn't I want to make sure. Uh, I have pronounced guest names incorrectly <laughs> in the past. Um, and actually, I heard Kevin first on the School Sucks podcast, and you had a great episode on there. And it was it was about an article that you wrote by the same title called Kids Don't Want or Need Our Praise. Mm-hmm. And you talked all about your experiences um, teaching karate to kids and and sort of realizing how detrimental uh, praise could be. And it's, and I listened to this at the same time I was reading, um, a book by Elfie Cohn, unconditional parenting. And he talks yeah. a lot about that. I know he has another book called punished by reward, which I have not read yet, but, um, so I listened to that. I loved it. I went to your site, revolutionaryparent.com, uh, downloaded your ebook and started listening to some of your podcast uh, episodes, revolutionary parent radio, which is really great stuff. So that's how I heard about you wanted to bring you on the show, but let me ask you, can you kind of give your own background bio and how you got into the world of, um, I guess, revolutionary parenting? We can talk about what to call it, peaceful parenting, <laughs> philosophical parenting. G- give us your story. Yeah. So uh, like you said, I was a martial arts instructor teaching Olympic Taekwondo. I had a school that I co-owned and from a very, so I was, I was parented mainstream, right? Um, so that's all, that was the paradigm that I knew and growing into this role as a martial arts instructor, I started realizing like, okay, like when kids are coerced to do things, uh, punished, praised, rewarded, all the, like this whole paradigm doesn't seem to be very effective. For example, in Taekwondo, which is a Korean martial art, it's a militarized type martial art where, uh, you know, it's very typical for orders to be barked in the classroom. And if you do something wrong, you end up having to do push ups and things like that. Right. So 
there's this punishment system built into it. And I realized like the kids who always have to be made to do push-ups for doing something wrong, whether it's, you know, acting out in class, not being focused, not listening, whatever, they always, it, it, it repeats itself over and over again. You know, hmm. the next day they're doing push-ups again. The next day they're doing, it never fixes anything. That, that's you know? such a weird element of the, certainly the punishment side. We can talk about praise later is this idea, oh, well, you have to do this to change the behavior. But right. if it was true, then you wouldn't have to keep doing it. And you always yeah. do. Right. Like the people who spank wouldn't have to spank the next day, the next day, the next day. And then years down the line, <laughs> you know, like they've been spanking since the child was two and the child's eight and they're still doing it. And they're saying, well, this is what needs to be done. Right. Um, and it, but it, it doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't, it's, it's maybe effective in the very, very, very short term. And it's just effective for gaining compliance, right? Which is not really what, it's not a virtue. It's not what we want kids to, to become, it, right? We want kids to, if you look at like yeah. the Pilgrim experiments or whatever, <laughs> exactly. It you can know, be obedience, convenient for us, but it can be scary. Yeah. Obedience, not, not typically a great thing, you know, even though that's what mainstream wants, they want obedient kids. But if you really look into what obedience is, you realize that it's a, a very destructive thing. So we don't want kids to be obedient. We want kids to be free thinkers and critical thinkers and people who go against the grain when, for example, with with laws, like if a law is a bad law, right, if it is uh, violating the rights of people and not actually protecting people, we shouldn't just go along with that law because somebody in authority said so, but obedient people will, right? And that's where the problems arise from. So, you know, we want our kids to kind of push back and to have their own voice and be independent human beings. So that's kind of the direction we need to go. So, so you saw this as you were an instructor, you started to sort of realize this. Was this before you had kids or did you have kids at the time? This is before I had kids. Okay. And like you said, regarding Alfie Cohen, he was one of the first that I was turned on to with a, a new approach to doing this. And then of course, there's many other kind of thought leaders in, in this space. But Alfie Cohn was the first, and I started applying those principles in the classroom, and I started realizing that, okay, you know, when you stand up and you bark orders and you dole out these punishments, I had a, a, the owner, the co-owner that uh, I was working with was much older, had been in the business much longer, was also very mainstream, and the, the chief order barker the chief, you know, punisher with push-ups and wall sits and all this other stuff. And I, I watched him do all of this. And I realized that he thought the kids were respecting him when really the kids were just afraid of him. <laughs> and I realized like when I started changing paradigms, I started changing my approach. I wasn't doing any of that. And I was getting way more cooperation out of the students because they actually respected me. They weren't afraid of me and therefore they wanted to do things that I was asking them to do. And they were much more engaged in the class and the class ran far more smoothly. So, you know, I tried of course to turn him on to this stuff and he didn't want any part of it, even though he recognized that, you know, when I ran class, it was a great class, you know, but he just still was stuck in, in his way of doing things. And I think a lot of times it's an ego thing, right? He thinks that that's what creates respect. He wants to be respected. So that's the strategy he goes for, hmm. uh, which is really unfortunate. So, um, and, and I don't want to, I don't want to repeat all this stuff in your, in your phenomenal interview on the school sucks podcast. I encourage people to go, go look it up. Uh, but 
give us like one story because you had a couple in there that were really profound during this time when you started using this different approach. Some of the things that you observed um, in the in the karate you know classes that kind of bring home the the relevance of this approach. Yeah, well, like I said, as far as like gaining cooperation goes, that was probably the biggest one. I, I had uh, one incident where, and this is this has only happened in the 15 years that I was an instructor. I can only remember one time where this ever happened. Uh, but a child punched another child. Um, they were grappling, so we were working on grappling. <clears throat> and I guess one of the kids got frustrated that he couldn't get out of the position that he was being held in. And instead of communicating to his partner like, hey, I want to stop or, you know, they're instructed to tap out if they want the match to stop. That's kind of like you're saying, all right, I give up. Let's start over. I, I guess those things didn't come to his mind at the moment. He decided that the best way to communicate was to just to punch the other person in the face. <laughs> right. So he does this and I was the only instructor there, but I know what would have happened if any other instructor was there. You know, this would have been a, a massive ordeal. Uh, of course, he would be punished, yelled at, shamed in front of everybody. And he probably would have been afraid to ever punch somebody again in public, right? But that doesn't mean he's a good person. And somebody who, you know, chooses not to punch people because he wants to do the right thing it just means he's afraid of the consequences, right? Um, and that's not the type of person, like I said, we're trying to raise. We want people who do the right thing because they know it's the right thing and that's the choice that they make. So I went over to him and, uh, you know, I'm I'm trying to, number one, just diffuse the situation, get them to calm down because they're both crying at this point. Like the kid who got punched is crying because he got punched in the face. The kid who did the punching is crying because he got caught, right? He, like I saw him do it. He thinks he's going to get berated now. Uh, and I kind of just got down on one knee and, and I s asked them what was going on. I asked them to communicate to me. I asked the kid who got punched in the face what happened. Then I asked the kid who threw the punch what happened. And I started focusing the situation on how the person who got punched felt. And, and I asked the person who threw the punch, I said, how do you, how do you think he feels? And obviously he's crying and, you know, he's telling me he's upset. Obviously he got punched in the face, things like that. And he started crying harder as he was talking about how this other child felt. And I think he really started to connect with, hmm. okay, it's not just like, you know, here's an authority figure telling me that what I did was wrong. Like I'm seeing in this other person, like pain and sorrow, all of this stuff. I'm and connecting with that and empathizing with that. He realized like, uh, I actually, like, I feel guilty that I did not because you're making me feel guilty. I just, I realized that that, that was wrong. Hmm. And that there's a better way to communicate, right? And I start going now through what what can we do next time when you get frustrated? You know, what are your options besides punching this person in the face? And he starts naming off things that he could have done. And I'm pretty sure that next time that comes around, that same thought process is going to go through his head, mm -hmm. right? And he's going to be able to make a better decision. So I'm giving the, the student tools rather than just giving them orders and punishments, right? And I think that's the goal. And, you know, you mentioned that moment where he started to develop some empathy, like right. put himself and, and empathy is so important. And it's one of the things that, you know, as parents, we see our kids behaving in a certain way that shows a, a sort of lack of empathy or lack of awareness of how they might be affecting other people. And we want so badly to teach them empathy and instill it in them. But it's one of those things you can't, you can't say you need to be empathetic, right? Because <laughs> right. I mean, I, it's it's like the old fashioned. I remember this. I had this with with my parents. It's you know, 
while your parent is spanking you, they're saying, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you. It's like they're trying to get you to empathize with them while they're yeah. hitting you with a stick. And it's like, right. wait a minute. I don't think that's how empathy can be conveyed, but it's, it takes so much patience and time. It's so much harder. It's so much more work to try to create the conditions in which someone can actually start to ask those questions and introspect and then say, Oh, wait a minute. How, how does this other person feel? Um, and yeah, actually he, gain he, that. Here's the thing. Cause I don't want people to think obviously, obviously it does take a lot more work, right? But you're doing the work on the front end. Mm. And it, as the child gets older, it takes far less work, mm. right? Where we talked about with the spanking, you start spanking at two, you're still spanking at eight. If you invest the time to develop empathy in a child, to give them tools instead of punishments, to actually teach them and lead them, right, which is your role as a parent, you do that at age two, three, four, five. They're autonomous at six, seven, eight, nine, ten, yeah. eleven. Of course, they're going to still run into challenges they haven't run into yet, but you're not going to be dealing with the same stuff over and over and over again. And when you talk about something like empathy, when that's actually developed – that heads off so many potential problems in the future because a child is now assessing every situation with how is this going to impact the people around me? And that solves countless numbers of problems that parents usually run into, right? Yeah, that's one of the things I'm glad you brought that up that I wanted to, to talk about is this approach to parenting, is it harder or easier? And there are so many ways in which it's harder, especially like in the moment of crisis or when you're just like frustrated and it's just like... I just want my kid to just do the thing I want him to do. There are times where it's harder, but there are so many ways in which it's actually easier because what you find when you start to treat a child as an autonomous human being and you start to, you know, not, not just see them as this, this thing that needs to just do whatever you say and that their duty is to do what you want them to do. No, their duty is to do what they think they should do. And if it conflicts with you, you need to talk with them like you would anyone else. You need to resolve it. But there's this great burden that's lifted because then you don't have to be policing their every moment. It's like you just, you know, you're living with another human being and you don't, not everything, not everything is your business in a way. And it lets you sort of develop. I mean, it just, it takes away the arguments, I guess. There's not so much arguing when their, when their job is to do whatever you think they should do, they're going to argue with you. And it's going to be constant arguing. Like we alluded to before with punishment, you're going to continue to need, it doesn't stop. Right. And once you, once you adopt this viewpoint, it's harder at times, but I would say overall, there's so much less stress in your relationship with your children. What, I don't know. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. And I think if you look at why most parents want their kids to be obedient, it's because the parent wants to decide what behavior is quote unquote correct in any given situation. And they just want the child to do what the parent would choose to do in that situation. So the parent is assuming that number one, the child is incapable which does send the message, by the way, to children that they're incapable. And so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, really. Mm -hmm. um, but what the parent is also doing is they're, they're not putting any trust in the child and they're not giving the child a chance to actually learn, which learning, the best way to learn generally is through failure. And if you let kids fail early on, the consequences of failure is far less severe than if they fail later in life. So by the parent always saying, this is how this situation should have been handled, you need to handle it like this, there's no arguing, there's no discussion, there's no negotiation, it's just the parent solving all challenges that the child is running into. Whereas 
I think a better approach would be, all right, let's discuss the options we have here. What What is the option you want to choose as the child, right? And can I let them do that? Like if I let them do that and they fail, is it going to be a big deal? What if they succeed? What if they came up with a solution that I wouldn't have come up with? Right. So I'm confining them to this box as a parent. If I'm always trying to tell them what to do or what their behavior should be in every single circumstance, that's not the way to develop a, a child who is going to be successful without you. That's a way to, to develop a dependent child, the psychologically and socially dependent child. So, yeah, you're right. We have to give kids space to figure this stuff out on their own, right? If it's a safety issue, of course, all right, we need to step in and be more involved with that. If it's not, we need to ask ourselves, does this really involve me? Like so many challenges that kids can solve on their own, parents step in and solve it for no reason, just because the parent wants to or it, thinks that that's their job or something. You know, it's, it's, sometimes it's hard to see your kid suffer or see them fail, um, even in small ways. You know, they want to go play with a neighbor and the neighbor doesn't want to play with them and it hurts their feelings. And we have this, this urge to rush in. And this is where, uh, the praise comes in or just preventing them from failing. Oh, I want to make sure I get you on this sports team and get you in a position where you won't suffer any embarrassment or you won't fail, or you won't find out that you're really not that good at this sport. So I'm going to keep telling you that you're good. And I think, I mean, it does a lot of things for one. I think it undermines trust because kids are, are smarter than that. They kind of know that you're lying. <laughs> but yeah. two, I think it creates the, these kids. I mean, I, I deal with a lot of high school and college students in, in my work with my company Praxis and just talking to a lot of kids, uh, you know, all over the place. And they're so terrified of failure. Yeah. They don't want to take any chances or risks because they've grown up where like everything they do. I mean, you talk to kids who are like, I'm not going to take this class that I love because it's hard and I might not get a four point and then that will hurt my, they're so afraid of failing that they won't do things that they love and care about. They won't take chances and you can't grow you know, if you're not willing to fail, um, so it's, it's really sad. It's really very sad. Okay. Now before we go, cause I, I have realized we haven't defined this before we go on, give me your definition of revolutionary parenting or, or is there a different name that you would call this approach to parenting? Uh, it's, it's really tough because I try good parenting. <laughs> I, I think when people brand things, a lot of context gets left out yeah. and people start thinking in one direction and it kind of puts them inside a box. And so I tried my best not to define it. the best way I, if I had to choose a word, it would be authentic parenting. Okay. So it is about being an authentic leader to children and an authentic human being. So there's a lot of approaches that people take to parenting that are not authentic. Uh, and we can judge a lot of these you know, choices we have as parents by easily just asking, is this authentically what I would be doing? Like if I want to raise XYZ child, if I want them to have such and such values, do my behaviors here align with that? Um, am I choosing things, uh, am I choosing behaviors as a parent simply because those were behaviors that were done to me or have I really spent a lot of time thinking about these things? So if you're just copying what was done to you, that's not very authentic, right? If you've put a lot of thought into something and you're choosing tactics for very specific reasons, now we're getting more into the realm of authenticity. And if we spend a lot of time thinking in a non-biased way, we come up with this set of kind of principles that guide our parenting, things that we probably shouldn't do if we want to achieve the goals that we have for our kids. So authenticity is the word that I always come back to. 
For example, let's go back to the, the example of the child punching somebody, right? I think most people in that situation at some point, probably toward the end of the discussion, would force a child to apologize to the other child. Like, say you're sorry. Yeah. Right. Say you're sorry. Now, what does that accomplish? Right. It doesn't accomplish anything. The child says, I'm sorry. Like, does he actually mean it? Right. Did you give him any tools for next time? Did you help him empathize with how the person feels? Did anything legitimate happen here? Or did you just shame him? And then we know what an authentic apology is versus an inauthentic apology. Parents do this with sharing all the time. I told you to share. The rules are that in this household we share our toys. Is that a child that authentically wants to share or is it a child that's just following these demands that are placed upon him? If we want children to authentically share, then we have to come up with authentic ways to approach that challenge, not just make demands. Demands is not an authentic behavior. You know, it's that's a great example that reveals <laughs> how often we tell ourselves what we're doing is about the child or we want them to learn to be the type of person who apologizes or whatever. But so often it's really about the parent. I mean, I can't tell you the number of times when we're out in public and someone comes up and says, oh my gosh, she's so cute. Hello. And <laughs> I, it is so hard to not say, Say hi, honey. Say hi. Like to try right. to make her because I feel awkward and embarrassed in that moment. And I'm like, you know, the woman looks down and my child is just staring at her. And then the woman looks at me like, what's wrong with your child? Aren't they going to say hi? And I have this feeling and it has nothing to do with my daughter. I'm not asking the question, will it actually help her in life for me to force her to say hello to a stranger? Uh, <laughs> I'm just thinking, I feel uncomfortable. This woman's judging me. Why won't my child just say hi so everyone <laughs> knows that she's a really nice child? You know? <laughs> yes. How often do parents make decisions because of how they feel about others watching them in that situation, yeah. right? So going back to the word, is that authentic behavior? Am I behaving authentic? If I was not in this public spotlight right now, would I be making the same choices? You know, that's that's a, a great example. Um, but yeah, what happens next when a child doesn't say hi, inevitably the parent freaks out and they go, oh, they're shy, you know, yep. or the person who didn't get said hi to <laughs> says, oh, they must be shy. That's okay. Right? No, they're not shy. They don't know you. You're giant, right? They have no, they have no reason to talk to you right now. Right? So they don't have the emotional development to just stick out a hand and shake it and say, Hey, how you doing? You know, I see you're a stranger here. I'd love to have a chat with you. No, the kids don't do that. Right? So by labeling them as shy, whether it's the parent or the person, you actually develop a shy child, hmm. you know, a child says, Oh, you're right. I am shy. I really want to be shy. Cause I don't want to talk to you right now. So let me go do that for the rest of my life. Right. That, that's a really great, that's a really great point. I, I mean, this, this doesn't always work because children are different in so many ways, but I find it's really useful oftentimes to substitute if this wasn't my child, but if this was a friend or a peer of mine, um, how would I view this situation? And sometimes it helps you, it helps bring into focus some of the absurdities of the way we deal with children. I mean, if, if someone walked up, if I was in the grocery store with a friend and someone walked up and said, you are so cute and touched their head <laughs> and they right. didn't say anything back, I wouldn't be like, say hi to them. You know, what's yes. wrong with you? I'd be like, let's get out of here. <laughs> you know? Yeah, um, absolutely. So let me ask you a couple. So I'm, there's, I'm sure there's tons of objections that you get and, and I want to hear some of the common ones, but one of the things when I was looking at some of the articles on your website, um, one of the things that I'm sure you hear and I've heard is, okay, so this approach, 
it seems naive. It seems to naively assume that human beings are all fundamentally good and that they're not ever going to do bad things. If you just leave them alone to do what they want to do and you just treat them with respect and never try to force them to do anything, that they're all just going to be perfect angels. But that's not the case. People aren't angels. You're missing that. How would you respond to that objection? So the first thing, okay, so we can assume that either a child, there's three possibilities. There's a, the children are naturally good when they're born. Uh, and I, I, we would have to define the word good, I guess, uh, naturally bad when they're born and we could define the word bad. And then they're a clean slate. Like they're not, they're neither. So they have the potential to be a bad person. They have the potential to be a good person. I tend to feel that generally they are in the middle, right? They are just a clean slate. So we see that if you take a child and you abuse them and you violate their rights uh, over and over and over again, you don't give them a good childhood, they have adverse childhood experiences, they either grow up to be uh, you know, violent slash angry slash mean slash whatever you would typically consider bad, or they just tend to be very wounded and withdrawn and closed off from most people in relationships, right? Um, if you treat a child very well, you give them a great childhood, they don't have a lot of adverse childhood experiences, they typically grow up to quote unquote do good, right? And, and be a good person. Um, I think the problem a lot uh, is shows up when you say things like, I'm going to make a good person out of hitting this child, yelling at this child, putting these rules on these child, telling them everything to do uh, about their daily life. And I'm going to send them to this institution called school. And then, you know, <laughs> so we do all of this stuff to children instead of with them. And unfortunately, by the looks of it, because they typically don't grow up to be robbers and rapists, we say, oh, they were they were great. They turned out just fine. Right. When in fact, they're just grown wounded children walking around mm -hmm. like they do have a whole slew of problems. I mean, it's undeniable that we have a massive percentage of people on anti-anxiety medication, anti-depression medication, massive amounts of people who are overweight because they're using food to medicate. There's so many issues with society. But because we're not raping and pillaging for the most part, we say everybody's great. We turned out just fine. Mainstream parenting works. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. So the way I look at it as actually, if you take a child, if they're actually a clean slate, what we need to do is treat them really well and we need to model virtuous behavior for them. That's the other side of things that people don't get. The, the people who advocate for doing things to children don't realize that most of childhood development comes from what they observe and what they observe specifically in people who mean the most to them. So their parents, their teachers, their coaches, that kind of thing. So they are not just learning by what we do to them, they're learning by what we model for them and mostly by what we model for them. So if I'm treating my child really well, I'm not spanking, I'm not screaming and shouting, I'm not putting them in naughty chairs, things like that, right? Somebody says, well, you're not doing anything to them. They couldn't possibly end up well. <laughs> but that's, that's the thing, I'm protecting them from me while I'm modeling all of these great things and giving them the opportunity to learn and experiment and negotiate and to grow. So I, I raise a more capable, peaceful human being. Hmm. And so that's the approach. That's the way that I explain it. You know, I almost, I feel like we could really, um, 
bring a, a, a good explanatory power to this question with some economic thinking. I'm a huge fan of economics. It's sort of rational choice theory, right? Where let's, let's put aside the question of whether someone's moral or immoral. And let's say one thing we do know is people are self-interested. Now yes. that's not the same as selfish. They're rationally self-interested. They're going to pursue what they perceive is in their self-interest. And that's, and that's subjective. Everybody has different preferences, but so what this means, if you put a self-interested person into a different setting with different incentives, they're going to respond to those incentives in a way that tries to minimize their own pain and maximize their own sort of benefit. So, I mean, this is why if you look at the Stanford prison experiments, you don't have to say, oh, those were all terrible, evil people uh, that did all those horrible things. No, those were people who are self-interested put into an incentive structure that was predictably going to lead to these bad outcomes. And I think if you put, put it that way and say, you don't, you, let's put aside the moral question. Maybe some people are good. Maybe some people are bad. Maybe they're born that way. But what we do know is that they're self-interested and they're going to respond to incentives. If you put someone in a place where uh, they feel pain, they're going to do something to remove themselves from that place. You know, you can sort of analyze it dispassionately in a way. And then that helps you realize that it's this incentive structure is more important. It's just like in the marketplace. If you want someone to behave with kindness, um, you have an incentive structure where if they're rude, no one will patronize their business anymore. So whether or not they want to be rude, they have to, to sort of pursue their own self-interest and make a profit. And I think that that lens can be helpful, at least for me. Some people think it's all cold hearted and, <laughs> but I think it's really, well, yeah, powerful. I mean, that's, that's kind of the trick of self-interest. The trick of self-interest is that in order to really further your own well-being, authentically, you have to find ways to do great things for other people. Yes. That always takes you much further than coercing people and extorting people, right? Like, like you said, in a marketplace, I can run a fraudulent business or I can run a very legitimate business. Some people would say, oh, well, you'll just have fraudsters if there's no regulations and rules. But why? When people understand that I can go much further and there's much less risk to me running a legitimate business, why would I defraud people? Yeah. Right. Like there's a huge risk to me and that I'll be found out as a fraud and I'll be sh basically shut down because nobody will buy my stuff anymore. Nobody will pay any attention to me. I'll be discounted like that's a huge risk. That's not in my self-interest to do that. Yeah. Um, same with children. It's not in a child's best self-interest to punch somebody in the face because eventually there's going to be a bigger person who punches them in the face back. Right. It's in their self-interest to learn how to communicate with people. So I teach them how to communicate and I show them it's in your best self-interest to communicate with people because then they communicate back to you and you work out very complicated problems very peacefully. Right. That's in everybody's self-interest. So you're right. There is. I think understanding that side of self-interest is extremely important. And, and it, and it, you know, under like respecting the fact that children are going to seek to benefit themselves. And this is a really good thing. It means you don't have to force it on them. It's, it's, um, you know, to, to use this analogy we've been using with the marketplace, there is no such thing as an unregulated business. The only question is what's going to regulate it. Is mm -hmm. the market going to be the mechanism that regulates it? The market is very harsh. If you do bad job, bad business practices, you're going to get punished. You're not going to last that long. Um, or are you going to have some sort of central institution that goes in and tries to, to regulate it, which does a really poor job and tends to, <laughs> and tends to create all kinds of corruption. And I think with children, it's the same. There's, there is a system out there already, the, the real world that they're going to interact with. It has built into it 
incentives for them to learn to be polite to people. It's in their self-interest. They'll figure that out. After a couple times of being rude and nobody wants to talk to them, they'll start to put the pieces together. It's the same with schooling when people ask about, you know, unschooling. Well, how will your kids learn to read? And I'm like, you're assuming that they're not self-interested at all. We live in a highly literate society (laughs) where reading brings tremendous social and economic returns. You think my kids are so bad at determining what's good for them and they're so sort of unselfish, like they don't want to be to have friends, to have jobs, whatever, that they're not going to realize, oh, it's going to be beneficial to learn to read. I'm going to learn to read. You know, like yeah. it's, the incentives already exist if we sort of get out of the way. We don't have to force them. Well, okay. So this is a, this is a great example um, of how the mainstream does not understand this, of how much they don't understand it, right? So there's this whole concept of potty training. And it's like a race to potty train children, okay? Why? Why is it a race to potty train children? Parents have this idea, like, if I don't potty train them and I stop them, I'm like, what? What's going to happen? Are they going to be 17 and well, they pissing don't on let, themselves? Well, they don't let you drop them off at the play place in Ikea until they're potty trained. So maybe okay, that's, well, the- that's <laughs> so there's an incentive to the parents, all right, if they want to shop at Ikea. But I'm just saying, is, is the child going to be 17 and pissing on themselves? Right. Like, yep. no. We have to assume that children are uncomfortable peeing on themselves and pooping on themselves. <laughs> and at some point, they're going to go, you know what? I think I'd rather not do this anymore. You know, now, if you don't say anything, like we didn't say anything with my daughter, we didn't do potty training of any type, you know, we didn't encourage anything, we didn't have any sticker charts, we didn't have anything, right? When did she stop using diapers? Before the age of three. So it wasn't like, you know, because I didn't intervene, we had some disaster on our hands, some some seven-year-old child walking around still in diapers. Kids have the interest to develop, right? Same thing like you said with reading, with writing, with math, with all this stuff. They are going to have interests that they want to pursue that is going to require adopting those things and acquiring those tools. They're going to do it. You don't have to force it. And the way we go about it makes such a difference if they if they are struggling if they feel like we're ashamed of them, they're not going to come for help. They're going to, they're going to be in denial. So, you know, my, my kids, we sort of, we sort of learned as we went, we started out basically with a traditional approach to parenting and kind of started asking these questions and realizing, you know, okay, how do we be authentic in your words, um, that we were kind of screwing, <laughs> doing things wrong for the first couple of years with my oldest, who's now 11. And we've changed dramatically, um, you know, over the years, but, one thing that's really interesting with my son, we tried to potty train him, you know, and he was like three and we were trying to potty train him. It was really hard. It wasn't going very well. And, um, you know, it took forever and it was all sorts of pain and agony in the process mm-hmm. and fights and all these things, all these things that you don't like, they're not enjoyable. That's not how you want to experience your children. Yeah. Um, but when he, when he started, he was basically potty trained, but he would still wet at night sometimes and he really didn't like it, but he would deny it. He'd be like, no, I didn't wet. No, because he, he was, he didn't want us to be ashamed. Mm, and to be expectation like, is right. there. Yeah. Now contrast that to my daughter, my youngest, uh, she's four now, but when she first started, we didn't do anything. She started to potty train herself and she would, sometimes she would wear diapers and sometimes she wouldn't just like based on what she wanted to. She didn't seem to have any like, pre- like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud to be wearing underwear. It was just sort of like tonight, I think I'm going to wear a pull up tonight. <laughs> Just yeah. and and when she she came to us and was like, I I wet the bed two nights in a row. I'm I don't want to wet the bed anymore. What can I do? Can you help me? And it was so different, such a different experience because there yeah. wasn't that judgment and that pressure there. And I think it's just 
it's so much more, there's so much more reward to it as a parent. I mean, for one, you only get your children young for so long and you don't want to be fighting with them the whole time. Yeah. But two, you want your kids to see you as someone who's there to help them. But if they're always afraid of you or they can feel your shame, they're not going to. In fact, they might start to lie to you or, or avoid it. Yeah. I told this story in my Facebook group, uh, just, just the other day of how, because we don't punish, we don't, uh, and I don't want people to think that when you follow this approach, that there's some utopia going on in your house, right? <laughs> like the first Trust thing me. parents need, yeah, the first thing parents need to understand is that you're dealing with three-year-olds, four-year-olds, like really young children. They just don't have the brain development yet. Even if you're giving them tools, that doesn't mean they're always going to use them or that they even have the capability of accessing them at certain times, right? So the other day, but here, this goes a long way towards understanding the difference between being an authority that your child is kind of afraid of in a way versus being somebody that your child respects and understands like this person is on my team a hundred percent, right? So my daughter was asleep. She woke up and sometimes as human beings do, you wake up quote unquote on the wrong side of the bed, right? You're not in a very good mood. My wife moved her without asking her, uh, right when she woke up and moved her to the couch and we've always been respectful in a way of like, if we're going to just pick a child up and move them, we tell them first, mm -hmm. right? It's just kind of like, don't just snatch the, the human being up and throw them somewhere. Um, so we communicate, right? So she felt like slighted because my wife just picked her up and moved her without asking her first, which is what she's normally used to. So she gets really angry and there's this cup of water sitting on the side table and she picks it up. And I was like, oh, she's going to throw that cup of water, right? <laughs> What does she do? No, no, no. She's like, she knows in her head, like, I'm really angry at this person, but this person's on my team. Like, I know they're on my, I, I don't want to hurt them. Like, she walks over to the sink. She's three and a half. She walks over to the sink, pours out all the water. And this is like a little, just a little like airline cup. You know, it has like no weight to it whatsoever. She pours out all the water and then throws the empty cup. <laughs> like she took a step. I was like, that's the nicest assault I've ever seen in my life. Right. She like took a step to like minimize what was about to happen before she did it. Even though she like, couldn't find another way to communicate, she found this, like this way to manipulate the situation kind of just lessen the results. That's so, a great story. Yeah. So I show people all the time. Like if you're, if you're opposed to your child, if you're not on their team, you got to know they're throwing that whole cup of water at you. Right. It reminds Every me of a, single time. Yeah. It's like a fight in baseball where it's like, look, we don't actually want to get in a fight because it's too costly, <laughs> but I want to make sure you know that I'm mad that you threw the ball so close to my teammates. So we're going to do like a little theatrical fight <laughs> just right. so you know. Exactly. Yeah. It's interesting. You said about the, the point of, Hey, this is not, this is not a utopia. It doesn't mean everybody's sitting around holding hands and it's wonderful family time. I think it's a, it's a great, um, point to, to mention that people have this sort of often double standard. Like they don't demand anything of the status quo. Like you said, as long as your kid, you know, kid doesn't grow up to be a murderer, you're like, what? We must have done everything right. Yeah. But when you're examining a new approach, they sort of demand perfection or expect mm. it. And, yes. and I think there's a, there's a great quote I heard. I don't remember who it was, but it was one of these sort of like motivational speakers, power of positive thinking type of guys. And, and after one of his seminars, someone came up and said, so do you believe that positive thinking, you know, you can just do anything if you think positively? And he said, no, I don't think that positive thinking can help you do anything, but I think it can help you do anything better than negative thinking can. Mm, and yeah. I think that's such a powerful way to look at it that like, look, parenting is hard. It's messy. Living with even roommates is hard, let alone roommates who have three-year-old brains or five-year-old <laughs> yeah. emotional development. It's not perfect. 
but but approaching it in this way authentically it's going to help you do it better than the alternative and that's really you know a, a relevant a comparison of the relevant options utopia is not on the table yeah and there's also the aspect of making more work for yourself as a parent or making situations really hard that didn't need to be really hard. Just like you said with the potty training example, where there's this, I, there's this concept of accidents, right? Like a child that's being potty trained has accidents when they, when they don't use the potty, when they wet themselves or whatever accidents, when you, when you watch a child who's not potty trained, who just has been able to develop and they make the, the conscious decision on their own, Hey, you know what? I, I want to wear underwear instead of diapers. They don't really have accidents because they're ready. They're ready for the transition. They're choosing it, right? If you put a child into a situation they're not ready for, there's a lot of consequences to that. And parents are constantly doing this, right? How fast can I get a kid into school? You know, how fast can I get him uh, to take the SATs? How fast can I get him to, to get in, into the, like the higher classes, you know? And then what do we have? We got a stressed out child. We got bad grades coming home. Then we're going to reprimand him for bad grades. We're going to have to shame him and say, man, I expected more out of you. All this nonsense. Why? Why? Because they were pushed into situations that they weren't ready for and that they didn't really choose on their own. So we have an authentic, in, inauthentic paradigm and then we're sitting around scratching our heads like why isn't this working out the way i imagined in my head you know and that is like so much of parenting so you have this great article on your site um on revolutionaryparent.com why parenting may not matter a casual rebuttal and you're you're responding to uh, in great detail, a, an article that was called why parenting may not matter and why most social science research is probably wrong and one of the and, and I want to ask you about this in in a minute on the sort of nature versus nurture thing. There's a there's a whole kind of movement or uh, line of thought that says, look, yeah, do the best you can, but parenting isn't that much of a factor in determining sort of how your kids turn out. Um, and that may or may not may not be true. And even if it's not, I don't think that um, is an argument against parenting authentically. But one of the points you made in this in this rebuttal that I found really interesting, where that the person is saying, look, you know. Uh, all the, the time that you spend with your kids doing all these things, it has very little effect on them. And you say, well, if your argument is that the time you spend with your kids um, isn't shaping them, you're kind of going off of scant evidence considering most people ship their kids off to school like six to eight hours a day and they hardly spend any time with yeah. them. So <laughs> the, the, maybe if the studies show, hey, these kids' parents didn't shape them very much. We shouldn't be surprised because these kids' parents aren't really spending that much time with them. Yeah, I, I found that really, really odd that they were like, you know, okay, it doesn't matter how much time you spend with their kids because we're looking at them later in life and we're just determining that they would have turned out that way anyway. But if you go back to the childhood, they spend all their time in public schools. <laughs> so like, what I mean, what are we actually looking at here? You're telling me, oh, you don't shape your child when you actually aren't there to shape your child? Like, wow, I, you know, I never could have imagined that would have been the, the conclusion. What, what do you think of this line of thinking? I, I actually have found some value in it. There's a book by an economist I like, actually, Brian Kaplan, and it's called Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. And he looks at a bunch of these different twin studies and some of these things, some of them that are mentioned in your article. And he basically says, look, everybody overestimates how much parenting does for determining how a kid turns out in later life. And he says, so 
in his conclusion, and whether or not that's true, I like his conclusion. His conclusion is, so chill out. Stop being a tiger parent. Stop hovering. Stop trying to make sure your kid's going to turn out to be successful. Chill out and try to do what you can to enjoy having your kid while they're a kid and enjoy, focus your parenting style on sort of the short-term enjoyment of having a happy, harmonious household, which I would say uh, authentic parenting lends to. But, but that kind of take can be sort of helpful as a mental tool sometimes when you feel like you're doing a bad job parenting or when you slip or you, you know, you know, I, I know that my, an authentic parent would have just talked to this kid, but instead I yelled at them and being able to say, okay, but it's not like me yelling at them once is going to turn them into an ax murderer. Sometimes can be a nice relief. Right. But I think sometimes, I don't know. What do you think of that argument that nurture is not that important? How do you approach that? I mean, I, so I am in the camp that nurture is very important, but I do see, you know, I, I've never been a person who has made an argument that you have to be perfect either. Right. Um, and even though nurture, I believe is really important, we have to look at the facts. Like you said, yelling at a kid a few times, isn't going to do anything. Even if I ended up for some reason spanking my child, right. It wouldn't ruin them. Um, and there's the other aspect here that doesn't happen in mainstream parenting, where if I do yell or scream or, you know, spank, if that ever happened, the ability to come back and the just the insight and the authenticness to come back and apologize to my child for doing that, number one, models apologizing, right? models real leadership like when a leader does something wrong they shouldn't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it didn't happen that's not a real leader right whereas mainstream parents if they have this idea that oh that one yelling session doesn't really have any effect on my child they may not apologize they may not say anything about it right and so the child is harmed and there's no apology there's no tools or a change in future outcome coming out of that. Whereas an authentic parent who truly believes that nurture is important is going to go to that child and make an apology and tell the child, you know, here's what I should have done instead. And they're going to mend that situation. Mm -hmm. So that would be my argument coming from a place where I do believe that nurture is very important, but at the same time, understanding that you don't have to be perfect. Yeah. That, that's a really powerful argument. I think the, the sort of nurture, the sort of system over the long term. What's the what's the sort of kind of relationship, the foundation and the sort of long term relationship you have there? Not so much each individual action, like this sort of Freudian idea. You know, one day my mom took my crayon and that ruined me for life. No, it's it's about a an ongoing relationship. And and using the an analogy again of of an adult relationship, you know, if my wife and I, if I snap and just like treat her really badly and yell at her all of a sudden. Um, that's not going to destroy her or our relationship because we have a, a much more in-depth foundation and she knows that I'll probably come back in an hour or a day at the most and be like, hey, I'm sorry, you know, I shouldn't have done that. And, and that ability to apologize with children, man, that's really powerful. That really is. I, I just find that it they, they are so quick to just to go from being like your mortal enemy and like, no, I disagree. And, and you have this fighting and then you just come say, Hey, even if I think I'm still right, say, Hey, I shouldn't have yelled. That's it's just not that big of a deal. I shouldn't have gotten that upset. Yeah. And then it's like, yeah, it's okay. I probably shouldn't have done that either. And it's just, everything kind of tends to melt away. It's really powerful. 
Yeah, and I can make the same argument on the flip side. If if somebody did present evidence that said, "Look, it's not nurture. It's a hundred percent nature. Nothing that nothing that you do matters." I would still make the argument that authentic parenting is the best way to parent your child. It's going to be the easiest way to parent your child in the long run, and it's the most respectful way to live with another human being and lead this other human being that you chose to have, by the way, hmm. you know, like if you're choosing to have a child, why are you then going to treat it very poorly? <laughs> you know, like let's, you just, it, who do you want to be as a person would be my, my take on it. So, okay, fine. What I do to them doesn't matter, but what I do to them changes me. It changes who I am. Oh, right. And cool. I got to decide today who I'm going to be. Right. Um, so that that would be my argument, even if that research came out. That's a really powerful argument that it's, you know, what what is it doing to me when I behave that way? I really I really like that. You know, it's interesting. There's also a subtle there's a subtle uh, premise in the whole, hey, look, what you do isn't as important for what your kid becomes. That usually is defined as how much money they make, whether they get a good mm -hmm. education defined by some, you know, credentialist, you know, degree thing, whether they have a job and they go on to, you know, get married and be considered in the top quintile of whatever. I would argue there's something flawed in that premise. My job as a parent is not to dictate the career that my child ends yeah. up in. It's not to make sure they end up being a lawyer. It's to make sure they end up being a genuine fulfilled person who discovers what they really want to do. And what if my child wants to have a very low income and travel the world playing guitar for enough money to live on and is very happy with that? Like, yeah. you know, these, these measures of how children sort of turn out, they tend to be focused so much on things that the parents want, not necessarily whether the children are happy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we look at, and I think in that article that I was rebutting, that was one of like the the things that they looked at, right? They looked at outcomes later in life in terms of job and income and all that stuff. And I was like, wait, wait, nothing here applies to virtue. It has nothing to do with being a good person. So basically what they're saying, if anybody knows the parable of the Mexican fisherman is these people are saying that the Mexican fisherman's an asshole. Like, and he's, he's, a, he's a nobody, he's a nothing, right? And that's, that couldn't be further from the truth. So yeah, you're right. We need to focus on raising actual, you know, productive, virtuous human beings. And it doesn't matter what their job is, their income, all this other stuff that people see, you know, that's superficial success. Mm -hmm. That's not a success of any substance. So let me ask you uh, a sort of rubber meets the road example. I'm going to tell you the hardest thing my wife and I have with parenting. And I want to hear you. I'm sure you've had other people ask you this. Um, and I'm curious how you, how you respond to it. And that is screen time <laughs> and a phrase that didn't even exist back in my day because there was yeah. only one screen in the house. It was the TV. Now you've got Kindles and all these other things. So, you know, our, our son, especially he's really interested in computer games and all this stuff. And he loves, you know, he loves his screen time. And there's, there's this part of me theoretically that, I've read all these articles and I, I I know enough to know that like, I'm not one of those doomsayers like, oh, kids these days, they should be out at the <laughs> sandlot, you know, instead of yeah. looking on screens. I know that they're doing really cool stuff. He does great stuff on Minecraft with his friends and I'm not opposed to it in theory, but there's this thing, there's two elements of it that make it hard. One in practice, when I see it going on for, you know, more than an hour or two for hours on end, it's like 
there's just some part of me instinctively that just feels like this isn't right. This kid's just like, get out, get outside, do something. But then there's also the, the sort of the more rational part where when my kids have been on a lot of screens, they're a little more edgy and a little more grumpy and a little more emotional and a little, they have a harder time with things like transitions. Okay. Now we're leaving and go grocery shopping. Um, you know, it's like they're, they get just, just like all of us do. I think when you're in front of a screen for hours on end, um, I know that it's not always good for them. And I have that hard time. Like, I think it's not good for them and they kind of know that it isn't, but kind of don't. How do I, regulate that if I feel like they can't self-regulate well enough. Yeah. So the first, I would say the first two, two and a half years of a child's life, parents should do their absolute best to not put them in front of screens. Um, they just, there's really no need for it at that age. And unfortunately, you know, damn it, baby Einstein, it's too late. <laughs> yeah. Well, screens get used as babysitters for yes. the most part, right? Because uh, parents know, oh, my child's fixated. It's just as good as somebody sitting there watching them. Um, so th- they use it in that way, but it's just not necessary. Now, I'm also, you know, very practical when I look at the future and I say, kids are going to have to know how to use computers and tablets and all these devices, right? Um, and the sooner that they get to doing that, the better. And there's a lot of other benefits as well, especially when we talk about alternative uh, schooling methods, alternative education. I mean, apps and different things that kids can do online are going to be a huge part of that. But I think when parents look at this and say, so we recognize that there's huge benefit to being on screens Uh, There's also a huge benefit to not being on screens, to being outside and sunlight and getting movement. So if we tip the balance in either direction, we're probably going to have some negative consequences. But parents run into this idea of how do I get my child off the screens and outdoors? How do I get them to go play? How do I get them to, you know, go do something else? And I think parents need to, again, look at themselves because this is not about what we do to children or what we tell children. It's about what we model If you as a parent never go outside and play, right, never really do anything outside, how would you expect your child to? If you as a parent go sit in an office for eight hours a day in front of a computer, how can you then come home and and demand that your child don't do that? I I work from home and sometimes I'll come come downstairs after being up on my computer for like four or five hours. And I'll see my son. I'll be like, how long have you been on that screen? You should get out. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So we see, we start to see, right? But most people don't connect these dots. Um, So, and this goes back to authenticity. When you're trying to be an authentic parent, the number one thing you can't be is a hypocrite, right? So you have to look at all of these ways that you're engaging in hypocritical behavior and find ways to change that. And when you do, your children see that and they do pick up on it, right? If you as a parent are promoting going outside to throw the ball or or kick the ball back and forth or whatever, or as a parent, you go out on bike rides and runs and you play tennis and you do all of these activities and you start to include your kids in those things too. You know, if you play tennis as a parent, take your kid to tennis practice, let them watch. Even if they're sitting there on a little device, you know, they could get interested in playing tennis. Then they can say, Hey, I want to play tennis too. You get them some tennis lessons. You got a kid that's playing tennis, doing an activity through an authentic path, right? 
So it's just this modeling idea of we have to be that person we also want our kids to be. If we sit on the devices all day, our kids are going to sit on the devices all day. And we can't demand that they don't because that's not fair. Like I'm doing something different than what I'm telling my child they should be doing. So um, I think so many problems are solved as a parent when you model and you commit. And that is a hard thing to do. You know, it's much easier to just sit there and order people around. Trust me. But it doesn't work. You know, um, and even if it does, is the child really going outside to play because that's what they want to do? Or is it because they were forced to do so? And then you have to think down the line. If you're forcing kids to do all of this stuff, they're going to build up this resentment. And what they do is they rebound when they leave you. So they go off to college and everything comes loose, right? They're staying up to 3 a.m. because you never let them do that. They're going out and, and drinking alcohol because you said that was bad and they shouldn't be doing that. And they do all these things you don't want them to do because they never experienced any of that. They never experienced any autonomy really at all in your home. Uh, and now they're breaking out and saying, I'm my own person. My inner rebel, which everybody has one, protects people against oppression. Human beings naturally don't like to be oppressed. So you oppress children for all of these years when they're at home and they get away from you finally. And by the way, most of this happens during the dreaded teenage years, right? So you have a teenager that's rebelling. It's kind of a sign, you know, if they don't have anything to rebel against, then you typically don't end up with a rebel, right? So they get away from you finally and their inner rebel is just screaming like, yes, finally we're free. Go do all of this stuff, right? And that's when you see you know, very negative consequences happen. And again, that goes back to consequences later in life are far worse than consequences earlier in life. Mm. So you have to think about, you know, what you're promoting in the future, not just right now with your, with your choices as a parent. Oh man, Kevin, I feel like we could go on for so many hours or so many things we didn't even get to. And uh, especially things on, on praise. I think that's a really big one. That's, that's hard even for a lot of, um, a lot of parents who don't use punishment still sort of, I know I have, I struggle with it, kind of miss the boat with the, with the, a lot of praise that might not be necessary, might be damaging, mm -hmm. but, uh, I don't, I don't want to keep you longer on this episode. Maybe we'll have to put that in the, save that and we can bring you back yeah, on. Yeah, I can come back. We're good. But you, I know you are, um, so the revolutionaryparent.com is something that you do. You've got a book, a podcast, things I mentioned, great articles, but that's just something you do on the side. So you're an entrepreneur as well. What is your main business? Uh, so my main business is rebootedbody.com. We show people how to get a body and life they love through real food, nutrition, and functional movement and behavior psychology. So we spend a lot of time uh, on the psychology side of things, helping people transition from like a standard American diet to a real food diet and showing them why they've failed in the past. Because people have these great intentions, but for some reason they find they can't align their behavior with those great intentions. And most of that is psychological and we show them why that is. Uh, so we help people with that at rebootedbody.com. Uh, and I actually have a, a third, I'm, I'm kind of like, I see myself as a web uh, property developer these days. Ooh, so, that's, I like that. That's a really yeah. cool way to think about it. <laughs> so like a real estate, you know, mogul on the internet, yeah. like internet real estate. What's your uh, third web property? So learning to light.com is a website dedicated to teaching people off camera lighting for photography, because photography has been one of my hobbies for many, 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 many years. And, uh, I have, of course I have like the heart of a teacher. I love teaching. And I just found that, hey, you know what? There's a ton of people uh, because picking up a camera and just shooting in natural light 
is very simple, and that's how almost everybody starts. But you get to a certain level where you you really want like the total control over the images that you're making, and you do that with off-camera flash. And there's just you can't just throw of, a filter on it and Instagram. You can't, unfortunately. <laughs> I mean, people try, but you know, it it it's as unfortunate as their attempt. Uh, but yeah, I, I show people how to get control of lighting off camera. And there's just millions of people around the world who are really interested in learning how to do that. So I help them at learningtolight.com. That is fascinating. You know, I, uh, for one, I just, I always love people who are just interested in a lot of things and not afraid to go after a lot of things. So I, I love the diversity here, but the lighting thing, I don't know anything myself about photography, but I, I think I've observed the difference between having your buddy uh, or your colleague, you know, take a headshot for you or do a video for YouTube versus paying somebody a ton of money. The biggest difference is the person that you pay a ton of money for it. They just have lights. It's like yes. the lighting is like the number one thing that changes <laughs> lighting, the quality. Yes. So photography, uh, you know, if people are interested is all about light and shadows. That's it. Right. So you can't make a good picture without light. You can't make a good picture without shadows. And then the, uh, the way that you can control both of those things is what creates a final image that's very, very compelling, along with your subject matter and, and some other things. But it's impossible without light and shadows. So that's why I've never been good at the visual arts. My wife draws and I'll be you know, she'll be like, you know, when I draw something, I see the object and I'm like, I'm trying to draw a hat. And she's like, you can't look at the object. You look at tiny areas and say, I'm drawing a couple, a triangular shaped black shadow, you know, and, that, and I'm like, I can't do that. My brain doesn't work that way. Me, me neither. And that this is the key. And this is why I picked up on photography. I have an inner craving for producing artwork. And unfortunately, I cannot draw. I cannot paint. I cannot do most forms of art. But for some reason, I'm really good at photography. So that's what I like when everything else is shut down, when I'm on vacation, I'm not thinking about rebooted body at all. I'm not thinking about making blogs or podcasts for revolutionary parent. I'm still taking pictures and I'm that's still really lighting cool. things. So it was just, you know, it was obvious to me, Hey, like I got to start something online, help other people with this. There's huge potential there and going to self-interest. Of course it helps me to help other people. Yeah. So there we go. Are you still doing martial arts as well? Uh, I, I do martial arts sporadically. Um, I don't do anything with Taekwondo anymore. I got burned out on that, but, uh, I do do Brazilian Jiu Jitsu still. I think I called um, it karate earlier in the show. Sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, that's okay. No problem. No problem. <laughs> Dealt with that for a long time. Uh, they're very, they're very similar really. Um, except in like competition, the rules are a lot different. Um, strategies, things like that. But yeah, I, I stopped doing that. I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. I don't do it on a regular basis. What I like to do is I'll do drop-ins at different schools. Um, so from time to time, I'll drop into, you know, a school in the city over here and a school in the city over here. And so I just, I, I don't really care about the belts or anything like that. I just, I like the art itself. Kevin, this has been absolutely awesome. Again, it's Kevin Geary. You can go to, if you want more on the parenting stuff we've discussed, revolutionaryparents.com. Uh, you can go to rebootedbody.com if you're interested in Kevin's primary business and um, you know maybe getting your own health and diet in check. And if you're interested in photography, learningtolight.com. And who knows what Kevin might be doing next. Uh, hopefully we'll have you back on sometime. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. You bet.